Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Roger Angel, the writer, just turned 100 years old. Let that sink in. 100. Roger has contributed to The New Yorker since 1944. He's mostly retired now. Mostly. He writes about a lot of stuff, primarily baseball. He was also the longtime editor of the magazine's fiction section. He was never really a sports writer, though. He never had a column. He never followed a team. Instead, he writes like a fan who's come to visit. And no one has ever matched his ability to describe how it feels to love watching a baseball game. His writing has earned him a spot in the Baseball Hall of Fame, despite the fact that he was not a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America. When I talked to him in 2016, he'd just written This Old Man, a collection of stories and essays. At the time, he was a mere 95 years old. Anyway, happy 100th birthday to Roger, the greatest baseball writer of all time one of my favorites in any genre. Let's get into our conversation. Welcome to Bullseye, uh, Mr. Angel. It's what a a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Jesse. Glad to be here. So you have a really nice little piece in here about just memories of seeing different people on the street in New York. Yeah. And one of the people is Babe Ruth. Yeah. What was it like to see Babe Ruth? Well, on I saw. I, I used to see the Babe playing. I saw him. I I, I, grew, I was born in 1920, and I started watching him when I was about nine years old. And I saw him get older and fatter, and but still extraordinary. And I would I can remember coming into Yankee Stadium in that blaze of green when he came up above field level, and you look around and you'd see Lou Gehrig and Frank Rossetti and Babe Ruth out in right field with those little what I once called debutante ankles, those little tiny ankles that he had. Uh, and then when he retired, once or twice, I mean, New York was much smaller back then, and once or twice I saw him go by, I saw him across the street, mostly wearing a camel's hair coat and a cap, and people would say, oh, hi, babe, and they would wave. Uh, you would you would run into people all over town. In, in the book, there's a moment I describe when... My last son, my young baby son, John Henry, had gotten to be about five or six years old, and his much older half-sister, Callie, was taking him out on his first solo bike. I mean, this is not a tricycle, an actual bike. So they're wavering down 90th Street toward Park Avenue, and at the end of the block, this old lady appears, all dressed all in dark clothes, and she sees this kid coming just barely under control, coming toward her on a bike, and she dodges, and then she grabs the handlebars, and then as Callie runs up, she says, dangerous, aren't they? Greta Garbo. <laughs> Only in New York. <laughs> um, you know, we, you, were, you were watching, uh, you saw Babe Ruth and, and the great Yankee teams of the 1920s and 30s when you were probably at your most impressionable. I mean, I think... Like everything in my life, I, I was reading one of your pieces and you offhandedly mentioned Will Clark's swing. And it was like such a rush of, yeah. I grew up in San Francisco in the in the 80s and 90s. And like, it was such a rush of 1989 when I yeah. was eight years yeah. old that I like couldn't control it. I still have um, a, a, up on a bulletin board at home, I have a stop frame 
picture of, uh, of, of his swing, of, of Clark's swing. It's such a beautiful thing. Yes. So who did you love to watch play when you were a kid? Carl Hubble, who was pitching for the Giants across, across the river, was my first pitching hero and a, a, a fabulous left-hander who threw a screwball and the pitch broke the wrong way and absolutely dominating pitcher. Uh, he did this so often that late in his life, he walked around and he walked with his hand twisted around so that his little finger was basically front instead of the thumb and his palm turned outward. And I was a kid pitcher. I was about 12 or 13 years old. I wanted to be a pitcher. And I could throw a screwball that broke about a tenth of an inch if you about every night. And uh, so I began walking around with my hand facing the wrong way at home. And my mother says, what's the matter with your hand? And I told her, she said, don't do that. <laughs> so <laughs> there was an early hero. But I think the first hero that I really, aside from Ruth and the incumbent gods, the first hero that really caught my attention was Joe DiMaggio. Because we heard about him before he arrived in the Pacific Coast League, burning up the, the league out there, and then arrived and was it was just astounding, of course. And you could see right away who he was in that wide and unmoving stance and playing center field in a way he never seemed to hurry. And I never saw him rush. I mean, he just glided and, and flew along and made these uh, amazing catches look easy. And the thing I became aware of with Joe is what every every young fan becomes aware of, and this is a significant thing in baseball. I mean, I never I never write about whether baseball is a national pastime or our American game. I've never gone there, but what fans do realize, even young ones, is the passing of a baseball life. You can see a wonderful young rookie arrive, a Ted Williams, a Joe DiMaggio, just a kid. And you can see their first great years and then moving into their full power. And then within a decade or so, they become older players. And then you can see them beginning to slow down and strain. And then they leave. They die. So you see a life from birth to death in the space of 12 or 15, sometimes 20 years. Uh, it, it's, it's very moving. I, everybody remembers the old age of Willie Mays here in New York when he'd come to play for the Mets. And uh, he was not himself. He was just, I mean, there's another great hero of mine I saw as arrive as a young player when I was older. And his last year, he shouldn't have done. Because I remember there was a, a drive to center field. There was a play in center field. And his left fielder runs over, and Willie flipped him the ball to flip it back in, to, th to throw the peg because his arm was gone. So... Uh, there's a, there's a lot of there's a shadowing that comes over the late, latter part of all athletic careers. You grew up to be a writer, um, you know, with a mother who was a legendary editor and a stepfather who was, uh, uh, you know, a legendary writer and legendary stylist. Yeah. Um, but did you grow up to think that you were going to be? Uh, did you ever think, oh, I I could be a sports writer or? I could be a novelist or I could be something, something, something. Or did you always think like, I'm going to be a book editor or, a, you know, a magazine editor or one of these sort of jobs? I, that just, you're... Just, yeah, I think it was both because my, my parents were separated and I lived with my father, which is not a good arrangement <clears throat> for anybody concerned. My sister and I were, lived with our father and saw our mother on weekends and vacations and both our parents they loved us and cared for us. But when I was with my mother and stepfather, 
in New York and then their place in Maine later on. The New Yorker was all around. It was in their conversation constantly. They talked about Harold Ross, the editor. He was like another member of the dinner table. Ross this was always there. Ross the rest this, Ross that. And my mother would be surrounded with galleys and brown pencils and eraser rubbings and doing going down columns of editing. And my stepfather was was a writer, uh, very light things mostly, but he wrote the first page of The New Yorker every week, the comment page, which was a, an editorial. In those days, a fairly light in nature. But as the 30s went along into the 40s, he had to write about more serious things. The world had changed. And I used to watch him on Tuesday mornings up in Maine. He would shut the door of his study and there'd be the thrash of a typewriter in there now and then, but the long, long pauses in between. And he'd come out and lunch at lunch and eat his lunch in silence and look look very grave and writing is writing is really hard. I began to conclude, which it is. And then he would fly, he would mail it off in the afternoon mail and say it wasn't good enough. And then the copy would arrive, the rough copy of the New Yorker would turn up a week later. And you'd read this stuff, which was so light and flowing and easy and a pleasure to read a sense. You thought it took him about four minutes to write the whole thing. And I began to see what writing was like and what the, the pleasure of it, but also how hard it is. It's, writing is hard for almost everybody. And But I also saw what my mother was. And as I grew up, I wanted to be a writer. I was a smart kid. I wrote well as a kid. I was always doing things in school magazines and editor of the school paper. Um, I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be Ernest Hemingway, like everybody else of my generation, only I wasn't. And after the war, I had a job writing on a GI magazine, editing and writing on a GI magazine in the Pacific. And after the war and during the war, actually, I wrote a bunch of short stories, and they, they were okay. They, some of them got into the, into the best American short stories. But I realized that there wasn't enough in me to make me into a full-time writer, <clears throat> a novelist or a short story writer. I didn't have enough confidence. And I was married, I was gonna have a young family, and I also wanted to be an editor. So I became an editor, and by great good luck, I went first with Holiday, Holiday, Holiday Magazine for 10 years, which I loved. In both places, I could be an editor and a writer. And at the New Yorker, if I, whatever I wanted to write, there was always time enough, and they wanted the writing too. So I did both, and I went on doing that. And it was it was uh, just a natural thing for me, and uh, it worked out pretty well. I had a good time with it. When you started writing about baseball in your 40s, um, you were at the point in your life uh, where baseball players are at the you know you were in the you were in sort of the fat middle of your professional life and the players that you were covering um you know were staring at the age that you were and thinking about the end of their professional lives and i wonder uh i i wonder what that was like for you to just to come to terms with that i mean there's this moment in any sports fan's life where you realize that all the players that the players aren't older than you anymore um, and I'm approaching the point in my life, you know, I've got about five years before they all start being younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we were all fans at one point, I remember a year, well, I was in my, in my thirties and I was seeing a therapist once, once in a while. 
And I had a dream that I walked out the door of our little house in the country and walked down a little tiny stream on a footbridge. And in the tangle of greens across the way, there was a gravestone. And I, I pushed it aside, and on it was, was my birthday, 1920, and then the, the present year, which might have been 1953, let's say. And I thought, what is this? And the therapist said, what does that remind you of? And I said, it reminds me of those gravestones, those, those marker stones for bygone players out in the center of Yankee Stadium. And then it came to me. It was the end of my dreams of being a major league ball player. <laughs> I had died. My, my baseball playing years were over. I never played baseball, but they were over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like there is a not insignificant part of me that thinks, look, if I dump all this radio and podcasting baloney and just focus on the knuckleball, I got a shot. Like it's a slim shot, but I could the knuckleball could still be my ticket. But yeah. I think about th yeah. three years from now, I'm going to be out of luck even on the knuckleball front. Well, I think it was a lot easier, at least when I was younger, to have that kind of a dream because ball players were not all that big. They were they were a little bit bigger. You got to the you got to Yankee Stadium or the Polo Grounds, and you, if you had a decent seat, you could see these guys were just about the same age as people you knew, like your uncle, if you had a big, strong, powerful uncle. They weren't six feet seven. They were maybe six feet and a little more muscular. They were like us. They were like regular guys. And so it was easy to think with a little luck that could have been me, which is what every young man used to think, with a little luck that could have been me. Uh, but you know, you can't think that anymore. And I don't think it's the money or the celebrity of players that does that. It's their size. Modern athletes are enormous. They are nothing like us. Even the ordinary ones, these don't seem outsides. If you stood next to Derek Jeter, he's a huge guy, a big guy, much bigger than you, much bigger. If you stand next to Arod, you, you'd think, this is a different species. They're not like us, and they aren't. They are, they are, they're outsized in their skill. They're, they're much more skillful than the old, old players, and... Uh, there's just no comparison. So I don't think that dream, that little, with a little luck, it could, could be me. I don't think that kids think that anymore. Maybe they do. Did you feel like a real sports writer when you started writing about sports? When I started, Jesse, I was, I was, you know, I was a, in my forties, a, a magazine editor, and I was afraid to go into the clubhouse because I was just a fan. I was a good fan, but I didn't know what these guys, and I didn't know what, what to ask them. Or, so I sat in the stands. This is in 1963, and uh, it was a good year to sit in the stands because that was the first year the Mets had just arrived in New York, and they're playing at the Polo Grounds, one of the worst teams of all time. And I sat in the stands and watched them and wrote about them and wrote from the point of view of me sitting in the stands and watching what was going on. And what was going on around me, which is this fan suddenly adopting, the New York fans who were used to winning and used to the Yankees, the Imperial Yankees across the river, suddenly getting aboard the Mets. Let's go Mets, let's go Mets, a cry for a losing team. It was a great fan story and I was there, so it helped me a lot. But uh, after a while, for a couple of years, I got my nerve up and I went into the clubhouse and I was I got a lot of help from the, the beat writers and columnists who were there 
God, you got to know them, and they always help me out. They fill me in and made me made me feel as if I was almost a pro myself. And uh, I got to be more at home in, in the press box and enjoyed that. And uh, but there was a lot of help along the line. And by then, I had learned what I what I needed most of all was to find some great talkers, baseball players or managers who who could talk and would fill up paragraphs with their 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 stuff. And I, I as I say in the book, I collected them the way a millionaire billionaires collect great paintings, the great talkers, the three fifty talkers. <laughs> who were your favorite talkers? Uh let's see. Roger Craig, the inventor of the split finger fastball, an old Dodger pitcher, uh, who pitched for the Dodger yeah. And the manager of the, and and then and the, the manager, manager of the, the aforementioned nineteen eighty nine San Francisco Giants. Yeah, I'll say. So I'll important say. To yeah, me. I know, I know. Uh Joe Torrey, obviously. Uh, the great catcher and and uh, hitter Ted Simmons uh, come to mind. Jim Fry, who once was the former manager of the Royals. Uh, Ted Williams, a great talker. All these guys, I hung around and and ran my tape and take a million notes and put the stuff down in paragraphs. I remember going out once to start spring training uh, in Scottsdale and to see the Giants. And Roger Craig was out in left field. And I walk out there, and he's talking to a friend of mine, a writer named David Bush, and we shake hands. And David uh, says to Roger Craig, he said, you know, Roger, meaning me, has a new book out. Did you know that? And Craig looks at me, and he says, no, said, have, he said, have you read it? And he said, read it? He said, hell, I wrote half of it. <laughs> <laughs> and another, the other thing is, if you're doing this, you really want to— you find people who will take you in a little bit, even though you haven't been a pro. Some pro players will not really talk because you haven't played the game. But there is some kind of a barrier or a step over or a good guy who says, yeah, he's one of us. And I didn't want to be one of us as pals, but I wanted them to talk. And I remember trying to get Ted Simmons to talk to me. A very, very smart guy and a terrific hitter and a great catcher. It became a better catcher as he went along. And he was also, strangely enough, he played for the Cardinals. He was a collector of American furniture and a notable collector of American furniture. So one day I'm sitting with him maybe in spring training and he's not giving me anything. We won't talk. And I changed the subject to American furniture. And Simba, as they call him, Ted, looked at me and he said, stop right there. And he said, I said, Roger, I don't know if you know anything about American furniture or not. And if you did, maybe we might have an interesting conversation. But I don't know that. And then there's a pause. And then he said, and besides, my insurance agent has told me not to talk about my collection of American furniture anymore. <laughs> he was afraid somebody would come and swipe some of the furniture, which did go into museums. Anyway, this went on and on. And then one day, a couple of years later, out in Sun City, Arizona, he was a little bit older, but still playing. And he came out of a game early. And I went out to right field, the lockers. And he and I are sitting in the locker room together. Nobody else is there. And I'm still waiting in my empty notebook. And I'm thinking of something to say. And I said, Ted, you're a switch hitter. You throw right, but you're a much better left-handed hitter than a right-handed hitter. Why is that? And he looked at me and he said, why do you think it is, Roger? And I said, thrashing around. I said, well, it occurs to me that 
as a catcher, you have to throw the ball back to the pitcher over and over and over again. So maybe your right hand is too strong when you right bat. Maybe your top hand is too strong when you bat right-handed. And he looked at me and he said, I didn't think you'd have noticed that. And then he was mine. Then From then on, we were buddies. He would talk about anything. I couldn't shut him up. I'd stepped over that little barrier. I'd noticed something that was faintly professional. <laughs> we'll finish up with Roger Angel after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. There are these networks of staunchly pro-gun groups on Facebook. And one of them is run by these three brothers, the Door Brothers. But it turns out they don't just do guns. The Door family name has been attached to other causes. Their goal is to eliminate public education and to replace it with Christian schooling. The roots of the Door family on the No Compromise podcast from NPR. If you're looking for a new comedy podcast, why not try the Beef and Dairy Network? It won Best Comedy at the British Podcast Awards in 2017 and 2018. Also, I'm... There were no horses in this country until the, the mid to late 60s. Specialist bovine arse vet. Both of his eyes are squid's eyes. Yogurt buffet. She was married to a bacon farmer who saved her life. Farm-raised snow leopard. True. Download it today. That's the Beef and Dairy Network podcast from MaximumFun.org. Also, maybe start at episode one, or weirdly, episode 36, which for some reason requires no knowledge of the rest of the show. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Roger Angel, the writer and editor. He's worked for The New Yorker since 1944, editing their fiction section, writing some of the best work anyone has ever written on baseball. He just turned 100 years old. We're celebrating his 100th birthday by listening back to my conversation with him from 2016. Let's listen. Well, one of the great pieces that you wrote was a profile of Steve Blass, a baseball pitcher who had been truly great and essentially lost the ability to do it. Um, Couldn't throw the ball over the plate. Yeah. Well, Steve Blass had some some kind of a psychic breakdown. This has happened just after Roberto Clemente, the great star. The Pirates uh, had been in their second World Series. Pirates and Orioles played in, in 73 and 79, I believe. And played a great world, two great World Series. Um, Roberto Clemente had been killed in a plane crash. By far, the played as the greatest player on the Pirates. And Steve Blass had been a starting pitcher, but not a great, great pitcher. And suddenly, in uh, the World Series, I think it was the '79 World Series. I'm, I'm blanking out a little bit. Uh, suddenly, pitched above his level and was winning and winning. And the next year, he came and he could not throw strikes anymore. It was, he was all over the place. And over a period of the next three or four years, um, he lost and lost and lost. And, and suddenly, he couldn't, couldn't get the ball anywhere near the plate and dropped out of the major leagues and had tried a hundred different ways to come back and couldn't do it. And I went to see him just as this was ending. And he, I spent four or five days with him and his family in Pittsburgh and a very engaging, sweet man discussing this mysterious uh, psychic uh, uh, alteration which had ruined him. Uh, I was very privileged. I was very privileged. Um, if you get the confidence of a player, not everyone, but if you get the confidence that they will sometimes, turns out they want to, they want to tell you something. They want to tell you um, 
the wife of a young semi-pro pitcher that I spent a month with or so during the baseball strike in 1981. Uh, her name was Linda Kittle. And we and her husband, uh, not yet her husband, but her pitcher consort, later her husband, Ron Goble, spent a week together at the lowest level of, of uh, semi-pro ball. And at the end of this time, she said, we've given you our lives. And this is the responsibility of a writer. This happens again and again. If people start to talk to you about their lives, they are telling you everything that's going on with them. So this happens with writers, and you have to take it very seriously. Uh, people want to give you their lives, and you, you can't just make a story out of a life. You have to somehow justify what you've done and, make, and put enough in there so that there are glimpses of a life. You can't do more than that. But it's a great privilege, and it's scary. Did you feel weird about the fact that you were writing about sports, a subject that is so important to so many people, but for so many other people, and I know this as a public radio host, like could not be less interesting, compelling, or capital I important. I know because these people will probably are probably composing a note to me right now about the fact that we're talking about baseball. Well, I never, Jesse, I never cared about this. I mean, I don't, I don't go out and go into a party and expect I'm going to be talking baseball. Uh, if somebody comes along and wants to talk baseball, great. But I mean, I'm, I'm just a old guy. I can talk about almost anything or try to. Um, if, if it's baseball fun, and people come up to me and say, "I'm sorry, I don't know anything about baseball," I said, "That's okay. Come on, <laughs> it's not compulsory." But um, also learn the opposite, which is meeting people I didn't know—just people at some dinner party or something—who are competitive fans, and uh, they, I would say something or rather, if pushed a little bit, I'd say something about the the Mets or the Yankees or, or whatever, and they would say, oh, that's not true. <laughs> if you say so, I don't know, but it's so funny. But this is only the men, all this men, they want to, want to compete a little bit in their sports expertise. It's much harder to be a fan now. Uh, the distance of money and, and the way the stands are built and uh, the, the televised interview and the online stuff, uh, they're, they're not nearby. Uh, it's 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 too bad, but I I think that if we can still bridge this gap, it takes an effort. It takes an effort, and the wonderful thing that sustains you is the difficulty and the surprises of baseball. Nobody can predict what what's going to happen in baseball. Everybody asks me who's going to win this year. I say I have no idea. And they, and they say who's going to win the playoffs? Who's going to win the World Series? I said I don't have any idea. And over and over again, stuff happens. And you you just, I mean, two years ago, the, the Giants and the Royals, who were both wildcard teams, play in the World Series. They play a terrific World Series. Absolutely fabulous. Nobody, no sports writer predicted this. Baseball is completely unpredictable. And it's it looks boring. The same thing happens over and over again. Pop flies, strikeouts, base on balls, foul balls. And then... Almost regularly, almost every fifth or sixth game, you see something you've never seen before. Uh, absolutely astounding. It has something to do with the law of averages. But uh, no other sport does that. I, I, You know, baseball especially, but sports in general, is this series of 
stories on different scales. You know, this the story of an at bat, the story of a game, the story of a yeah. season, the yeah. story of a player's year and and a player's career. Yeah, and yeah. you know, it sort of frames for people who follow sports our own li- lives to some extent. Lives is the point. Yeah, I I wonder how how you see those things uh, differently as now a 95-year-old man uh, relative to when you were a kid or when you were a young man or when you were in middle age? Well, it's hard to remember what it was like when I was a kid, and I think it's hard to remember what it's like when I was a young man. It's it's a little difficult. My memory is okay, but things move on. But the thing about being involved with something like baseball is that it is played by human beings. And we tend to forget this. Athletes are so far away from us and so powerful and so rich that we do, we forget this. And Joe Torrey, a great favorite of mine, uh, and it's one of his last statements. He was, they were, the Yankees were pushing him out. And he said, I'm talking about his players, and he said, this is not machinery out there. It's not it's blood that runs through their veins, a wonderful thing. Uh, I remember a moment with uh, the pirate manager, Jim Leland. I was with the pirates somewhere, and he had just called in a pitcher and sent him down to the minors and said how hard that was. And I said, did you tell him you would see him again? He hoped he'd come back and you'd see him back up here and it would, it would just be a matter of time. And he said, no, you can't do that. These are human beings. You can't, he's probably not going to make it back. He's probably not good enough to make it to this. You owe it to them not to do that. And not every manager does that. Many managers just say, oh, we'll see you again. You're going to be great and then goodbye. And Leland said, I don't do that. I try not to do that. Um, great thing about Joe Torrey was he'd been a player and he never threw a player, never threw a player under the bus. I never heard him demean or dismiss a player of his. If there was a question about somebody who was who was slumping or couldn't strike anybody out anymore, he would say, "Oh, David is concerned about his slider, or so and so isn't happy with his at bats." And the insatiable writers' minds would shift for a minute to the player and not to the story. Uh, Torrey had played the National League was a great catcher and an all-star and led the league in batting one year. But what he talked about with his players was the next year after he won a batting crown and when he batted 90 points less. His batting average went down by 90 points. And then he would bring up the year, the day, when I think playing against the Cardinals, playing against the Giants, he was the first National League player ever to bat into four double plays in one game. He always mentioned that, and the players loved him for it because he knew how hard this game was for them. And I remember Jim Fry once talking about how hard batting was for a 230 to 240 hitter. He said, every at-bat is crucial. Every at-bat for the 235 hitter is crucial. One more hit per week transforms him into a 290 hitter. One hit a week through the, or a 300 hitter. One hit per week will do that at the end of a season. And he talked about Hank Aaron and somebody, somebody once saying to Hank Aaron, well, it must be nice to come to the ballpark every day and know you're going to get two hits. 
And Hank looked at this guy and said, I don't ever think that. I don't ever think I'm going to get two hits when I come to the ballpark. And there was a pause, and he said, well, if I don't get two hits today, I'm going to get them tomorrow. <laughs> so <laughs> it's different for the Hank Aarons. <laughs> you spent most of your, or a, a huge chunk of your career as the fiction editor of The New Yorker. And I wonder if all the writers that you worked with, um, who you had the most fun working with and who you found the process of working with the most rewarding. I don't think there's a single one. The whole the whole process, if you get to know, I mean, I think it's a big misapprehension about uh, editors. There's a feeling out there that, I mean, often shared by writers, inexperienced writers, that the editor is trying to ruin your great work. And some well-known writers still think this way. But my experience and the experience at the New Yorker editing fiction is that you are working, again, you're working with the writer about something that is so difficult. You're, you're, you are there with a manuscript or, or galleys between you, and you're trying to clear up a sentence or a paragraph. Uh, and you get hung up on this. I mean, John Updike, there are a lot of people I worked with over a period of years, and John Updike, V.S. Pritchett, the great uh, British short story writer, uh, Donald Barthamy, um, about, about 20 people that I edited for many years. And you would find yourself uh, trying to straighten out what had happened to this paragraph. Something happened mostly about the tone. Was it too, was it too uh, brisk? Was it too tough? Was it too sentimental? Uh, what's wrong with this sentence? Updike was the perfect example that he wrote really finished, wonderful finished copy. But inevitably, in every story, there's a place where you point out something and they say, yeah, I think you're right. And then he would try to do the sentence or the group of sentences over again. And you would throw in your two cents worth. And then John would call up the next, he always wanted the last proof, and he would call up the from this place in Massachusetts. Uh, probably most of the time we do this by phone. And he'd call up and he would have rewritten two or three sentences and you would write them down and they were better and they'd solve the problem better than anything that either of you have been able to figure out the day before. I think a lot of readers tend to think that what they see on the page was always meant to be that way. It was, it was came like, as like from some beautiful forge or something out of the writer's mind and this perfect sentences what they're reading in the book. And writers know that's just the last proof. That's the last stuff you had. To, you finally had to go to press, and it's the best you can do for the moment. Uh, it's it's so interesting, and uh, the collaboration with writers and and editors is very intimate. It's very strange. It's a very intimate um, and moving friendship, centered on the difficulty of writing. Well, in the title piece of the book, this old man. You write kind of about, you open with a series of paragraphs that's just about the ways that, what 95 means to a person's body, basically. Yeah. And My arthritic fingers is the first thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I wonder, like, when you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, geez, look at these arthritic fingers and all these different things and, like, oh, you know, my back hurts. I don't – I'm used to my, I'm used to my fingers. That's, I'm not thinking about that anymore. <laughs> right. But, like, what are the things that uh, excite you enough that uh, 
you're like, hey, let's get out there and and face the day and not only get out there and face the day, but like do things like what you do, which is to say you you still work pretty consistently and uh not not uh, much you know, i'm, I'm semi retired i'm just about retired and my eyes are getting worse i'm not doing a whole lot of work i hope to find i've been doing this book and i'm going to find something else to do but um uh, yeah but you, i'm yeah i'm lucky i'm 95 re- i'm 95 and i can still go to work which is very very i'm extremely lucky you were remarried recently like what, what I are remarried the- yeah i mean this is by a wonderful wife and we're this has happened and, and the piece i mean it covers a lot of ground and i say that one of the extraordinary things about being old is that the need for my wife died in in 2012, my wonderful wife of 48 years, Carol, and um, I thought everything was over, but um, we, 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 we go on and, and we take these terrible losses and somehow persist and life goes on inside us and we want to be connected and we want love and uh, intimacy and romance and, and friendship like everybody else. And it's a great story. It's, I mean, this is just, we've just recently in, in our times have begun to realize that old people are sensual and, and uh, romantic and uh, living, uh, still happy to be here and doing the best they can. And this is good news for us all. Uh, and my, my wife, Peggy, is, is a wonderful thing that has happened to me. It's, it's, uh, it's just there's no accounting for it. It's so great. But uh, all old people are like this. Well, this is how we are. And I think this is just the news is just getting out, certainly to our children. It's a big shock to our children that, that we, are, we are the way we are. I quote a line from, I read somewhere from Laurence Olivier. Was, he said about old age, he said, inside we're all 17 with red lips. <laughs> a great line. <laughs> Well, uh, Roger, I'm I'm so grateful for the book and, and so grateful that you uh, uh, took the time to come in and talk to me about it. Um, it. It was really nice to get to talk to you. Same here, Jesse. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it a lot. Roger Angel, everyone. He's written several perfect books about baseball. The first and maybe still the greatest is The Summer Game, but you really, truly can't go wrong. His most recent book is called This Old Man. It collects some of his newer work, including an article that went viral that he wrote for The New Yorker about what it's like to be old, which is absolutely wonderful. I got to tell Mr. Angel this at the end of our interview, but it was such an incredible honor to interview my favorite writer of all time, uh, someone whose writing actually changed the course of my life. And it's funny to think that that could be (laughs) writing about something as non-essential as baseball, but it was. So I'll say it one more time for his 100th birthday. Thank you, Roger Angel. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where my six-year-old son is running approximately 40% rate of, upon completing talking to me and turning around to walk away, letting loose wind. The children, they are our future. 
The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien as well. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can also keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.